This is TechSnap, episode 382. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. My name is Wes, and I am ever so lucky to have that Sultan of Snaps, the magician of Monte, that's right, the one, the only, Mr. Martin Wimpress joining me. Hello, sir. Hello there. That, I think, is the best introduction I've ever had on a podcast before. But you've got the right man. I see this podcast is called Tech Snaps, and I am ready to tell you about all the latest tech in Snaps. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I think you've got this maybe a little bit wrong. We're not here to talk about packaging or debate just which format might be right. That's that's a different show. But hold all of those thoughts. Maybe just boot them to the next Linux Unplugged. We'll probably need it. Today, I thought maybe we could start off the show with a few warm-ups that, well, to honor you being from a foreign land and our across-the-pond neighbors, we'll have a little humility here in the States and share some, well, some technical stories that just don't make us look very good. I'm sure anything we discuss can be transposed to just about anywhere in the world. Yeah, that is how it happens. Well, let's start then with, you You might know, we've got some midterm elections coming up here in the States, and it's big news particularly because, well, our election security in 2016 just wasn't very good. Yeah, we had heard, um, yeah, not just us, I think the whole world heard that particular story, yeah. So what's changed is everyone like upped the security profile and risk assessments significantly in, in the intervening two years. Well, you know, that that's a story I would love to be telling today. And unfortunately, no, it's just about as bad as 2016. This is a interesting report, in-the-field report from Maciej Kaglowski, a security trainer and founder of Tech Solidarity. He's writing in the Washington Post this week. For the past eight months, he's been traveling the country in what he describes as a sometimes quixotic attempt to train congressional campaigns about email security. On a recent trip... He was asking all the campaign managers just, you know, how do you go about keeping track of your personal passwords? When he saw them hang their heads in shame, he knew it was coming. I use the same password for every site. That's the answer that kept coming back. One one particular story that really shocked me and I think shocked him was, well, one campaign manager telling about a moment of panic when an old college friend who happened to share his passwords on a sports site logged into his Gmail account as a joke. Now, of course, Google's on the, uh, you know, pretty good at this. He got a notice saying, oh, someone from a strange IP signed in. <laughs> but you can imagine, especially if you have any sensitive data in there, you could see your career flash right before your eyes. So are these, um, like in that example, the Gmail account, is this a Gmail account that's specific to the organization that he's working for or representing, or is he using a personal email for business work? It's somewhat both of those things. Now, there are targets of the official systems, but I think a lot of the story here is you have really just average users tasked with running a complicated organization, and there's just not that tight separation of concerns that you would want to see. Maybe there's not resources to set up really strict firewall environments, or a lot of this is there just hasn't been a ton of training to keep people in the know of what the right practices are. This sounds a lot like sort of um, Security 101 from the past. I can remember back in the late 1990s and early 2000s preparing training material for the company that I worked for around password hygiene and how to manage passwords and you know common sense approach to how you open email attachments and 
uh, assessing whether you know the people that are emailing you and that sort of thing. And it sounds like not a lot has changed because um, security is rarely solved by technology alone. It's often addressing a people problem. And reading this article, it is kind of damning, but it also reads just like this is any computer user anywhere in the world. These are people that are just using computers as a tool and they're no different from, you know, my parents and my wife and my circle of friends who are not in the tech industry. They're just doing all of the same things that those people would do and and sorely in need of some education and awareness on things like password managers and email common sense. Yeah, you're really spot on. And I think Mancho has seen a lot of the same thing. He describes himself as truly shocked after talking to two dozen campaigns and really finding that no one was coming to talk to them about security. Mm. That's that's one thing I see a lot and I've seen in past organizations is, you know, even if you go as far as having some sort of security council or committee, if security, if there isn't people staffed with that as a component of their job where they are responsible for having, informing, helping users have secure practices in their everyday workflows, that kind of work often just doesn't get done. And and there are resources here, like the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. They've put out a tech playbook. Um, really, you can't, you can't really impeach the tech in there, but mostly it's been focusing on protecting campaign data, financial reports, or opposition research, or voter information. There is no equivalent guide that's being handed out to actually protect personal accounts. Yeah, I I thought it was interesting that he'd highlighted the fact that that training material was being sent out as an email attachment, further reinforcing the sort of the addiction to receiving and opening email attachments. Um, And he he had some, I, I imagine for people listening to this podcast, some advice that will sound very familiar and probably things that the majority of the listeners are already doing using things like two-factor authentication and using things like password managers. But one I found interesting was this idea that when you do receive email attachments, uh, instead of opening them directly, actually uploading them to whatever your cloud um, storage provider is and then opening those documents from from that place because it gives a level of protection of, of your local machine, which is... This is the first time I've seen advice like that, and I thought that was an interesting an interesting little countermeasure that you could employ. Yeah, and an unexpected benefit of all these these cloud, other people's computers yeah. is, well, uh, they're other people's sandboxes as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he does put out a plea to the likes of Microsoft and, and Google to basically say, you know, there's an opportunity here for you to solve this problem in quite short order for not a lot of financial outlay, and it would benefit um you know, the country, your country as a whole. It really would. And this is something, you know, both the United States and really any other sizable democracy is just going to have to solve as we try to incorporate more and more of these tools in really every aspect of life. It's kind of mind boggling that, you know, there's so much money spent on campaigns, at least in this country. And you could, we can't seem to spare a little of it to get some of these security practices right from the get go. It doesn't, it doesn't make me faithful. And for all of that money being invested into those campaigns, without good security practice, you could undermine the uh, efficacy of that whole thing by having foreign actors, you know, bad actors, manipulate the data that they are able to steal from your campaigners and, and you know, influence the, the, the flow of the, uh, the democratic process. I couldn't say it better myself, sir. Well, okay, so that's a story of really just 
the, the problems everyone faces, whether you have security experts or not, if you just happen to use computers as part of your job, it can be pretty darn well confusing to get that right in 2018. Our next little, well, security incident comes on the opposite side of that spectrum, and that's people that should have known better, who are trained professionals, and whose mistakes have very real consequences. Yeah, this is kind of shocking. So this is a story um, going back to 2010, where the Chinese authorities were able to identify a number of um, effectively US spies within uh, within China and systematically e- execute them once they'd been identified. And the identification of these covert operatives was through poor security of the, the messaging infrastructure that was being used at the time. It sounds like the CIA had imported a system it used primarily to communicate with various information sources, and they'd imported that system from some of their previous Middle East operations, where the online environment was, well, let's say considerably less hazardous, and just underestimated China's ability to penetrate any sort of technological barrier. You know, China's obviously very advanced and has spent a lot of time, money, and research perfecting their firewall and network analysis techniques. They are probably one of the most formidable technological foes I would say any country has out there. Yeah, uh, and obviously, you know, something that's being deployed in the Middle East, um, Al-Qaeda at the time, they were effective by not using technology, you know, so taking technology that was used in an arena against a low-tech foe and then putting it into practice against a high-tech adversary was probably um, unwise. And this, this article goes on to say from some of the officials who have since stood down from their posts that um, there may have been a little bit of arrogance as to just how secure uh, these platforms were that were that were being used at the time. It definitely seems that it could be easy, especially as, you know, the U.S. has been in a position for the past better part of a century to see ourselves as leaders of the world and have, you know, having the, the best technology and the, and the best experts in the field. And so you get that false sense of security. But mm. especially in warfare, things like that change all the time. And well, when they start going bad, mm. they start going bad pretty darn quickly. Yeah, it's an interesting story as well, because it paints a picture of espionage in the 21st century as well. Certainly people from my generation think back to the Cold War, and it was very much, you know, people in the field. But, you know, the way that um, espionage is conducted today, it's a very different theatre. And it also goes to demonstrate that um, nation state uh, espionage is alive and well. Very much so. In this case, you know, they they did try, the CIA does try to have some reasonable practices in place. Um, So, you know, if they're working with a new information agent, they do have a sort of interim covert communication system, something that's meant to be almost a throwaway and certainly a separate firewalled environment that's separate from the system they use for more trusted and verified sources. So you know that, well, okay, even if this, you know, this source doesn't work out, they're a double agent or they just get caught in the middle of this you can't link it back to the U.S., you can't link it back to the CIA, and you certainly shouldn't be able to hop through any of those fences and get to actually protected information. Well, of course, because this is TechSnap, it, it just doesn't go that well in, in the real world. No, indeed. I think the, the quote that summed it up really for me is, well, the CIA's interim system, it had a technical error. Turns out it connected back to the main covert communications platform. 
When they started suspecting that, both the FBI and the NSA trying to help out ran some penetration tests to determine, well, just how secure is this system. And, of course, they found easy access to the broader covert communication systems. And as they put it, the CIA had fucked up the firewall. Yeah, and and this really throws into sharp contrast. You know, this mistake cost... Uh, the, the the reports are kind of cloudy as to whether it was a dozen, dozens or 30 or so individuals who were uh, effectively um, executed as a result of having their identities discovered, which is really at the sharp end of of the seriousness of how information security can affect people's lives and is quite far removed from my printer with a built-in fax machine that may or may not have... Uh, specially crafted image sent to it via the you know the fax protocols um it's such a broad spectrum and a very unfortunate story that so many people uh, lost their lives over this oversight hopefully it can just be a shocking reminder to everyone that you know security really it's not you can't get to a secure state it's it's a practice that you have to be aware of and well you're absolutely right there's oftentimes in our personal lives either big or really kind of small consequences for mistakes in security, there are often much worse consequences, and we should all take it seriously. So the next story is a little bit closer to home for me, somebody that works with with Linux every day. Um, The Linux kernel, the version 420, is about to get a little bit smaller as the NSA-designed spec encryption algorithm is going to be removed. And this comes after some findings from the ISO, the International Standards Organization, that the NSA's cryptographic designs for Simon and Spec might not be trustworthy. This might all sound familiar, dear audience, because, well... Spec had actually just been added not too long ago, back in June, for the 417 kernel. Three-point releases. Hey, that's kind of a quick addition removal (laughs) turnaround time. I don't think there's anything being in and out of the kernel so fast that I can remember. It gets a little more, mm, let's say, confused here because the ISO actually rejected Spec a few months before kernel 417 dropped. The algorithm still managed to land in the kernel, mostly due to some heavy pushing from Googs. Yeah, so so Google were interested in this particular encryption algorithm because they wanted to use it on their Android Go devices. Um, and the thing about Android Go devices, if you're not familiar, is that these are low-cost um, phones for uh, emerging economies. So these are sub-$100 uh, phones. Typically, they use ARM v7 chips, and ARM v7 chips don't have any cryptographic, any hardware cryptographic capabilities. So, consequently, they wanted something that was a performant and low-effort encryption algorithm, and that's why they were pushing this as an alternative to AES, which is a little bit more um, CPU intensive. Google has been pretty consistent in wanting more encryption on the devices that. Android runs on. So I can understand that. And here they're they're facing some performance concerns, some hardware availability concerns. So, hey, maybe some encryption is better than none. I don't know that everyone would agree with that, though. Yeah. So I think the issue came about in that, you know, Google pushing this for, for performance primarily. And it turns out that there were some serious questions about the integrity of the algorithms that's employed by spec. And certainly when ISO quizzed the NSA 
around the design of the spec algorithms, the NSA were reluctant to answer all of the questions that cast some serious doubt over the integrity and perhaps um, whether or not they were carrying back doors that the NSA would be able to access. This has been a complicated area over the years where obviously the NSA employs, uh, you know, and and the, the British equivalent, employ a ton of, of very intelligent people and have legitimate needs for security within their own organizations, right? We've seen developments like SE Linux come out of those concerns. Mm-hmm. But they also have a long history of some questionable methods. And it seems like in 2018, the larger security community just isn't quite sure unless there are, you know, if the answers are all there, forthright, the communication's clear, I don't think it's precluded that another NSA spec could make it into ISO certification. But if there's any sort of doubt. But this is is a good story, right? So ISO are obviously involved in ratifying these crypto standards, which is excellent. And they've clearly got some talented individuals there to spot causes for concern. And also Linux being developed in the open, you simply can't slip something sketchy into the Linux kernel without it being scrutinized, which is what's happened here. And Google have actually backed down from this requirement to use spec. There's an existing crypto algorithm in the kernel called ChaCha, and they're going to be using that instead, which uh, provides all of the performance benefits that they were hoping to see from spec in fact i think it's a little bit quicker and it's a uh, well audited and well trusted algorithm so this article casts um some shadow over what google's um motivations were for pursuing spec when this existing algorithm was there that already met the requirements of what they wanted to do I suppose we'll just have to wonder and uh, just be pleased that in upcoming kernels, we won't have to think about it anymore. That said, didn't 419 end up as a stable kernel? Um, Yeah. And, you know, I know that uh, Ubuntu um, 18.10 is going to ship with the 418 kernel. Now, as it happens, this particular crypto algorithm is disabled. Um, So, yeah, for three kernel revisions. But I wonder how many devices are going to be out there with this kernel version enabled. And uh, I wonder how many out of tree patches might exist in devices, because, of course, if this thing is there, um, it could be could be used but uh it's been it's been outed now so hopefully hopefully people will be wise to the fact and will be choosing something else i'm going to call this a victory for open source so the next story we're going to cover affects something that's widely deployed probably billions of devices and it was a bug that was discovered in open ssh which is ever so subtle but enables you to potentially enumerate valid users behind an SSH server. Yikes. This is also interesting because, well, it looks like this vulnerability has been present for the better part of the past two decades, ever since OpenSSH was first released way back in 1999. Yeah, it's it's been there from the very beginning. But it's a very, very specific vulnerability in that it requires you to be able to uh, craft packets and fire at the OpenSSH server, and it also depends on the authentication mechanisms that you have enabled. And unfortunately, this enumeration is only possible when you have key-based authentication enabled for your OpenSSH server, which is 
best practice and therefore most SSH servers. Exactly, right? I saw some of the mitigation guidelines for this vulnerability included tips such as not using not using that and going back to password authentication. I know. What a time Ugh. to be alive when the <laughs> mitigation to this issue is don't use key-based authentication, but type your password in like an animal. What a time indeed. This was also interesting because it looks like it was only spotted by some security researchers after some commits were made in the source code for an entirely separate bug report. And the researchers just happened to notice that oh, it, it looks like this has fixed an unrelated bug. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. So we hear this term security researchers, but security researchers clearly do have keen eyes on these sort of core infrastructure projects. Looking at commits maybe to learn about a vulnerability that hasn't been disclosed yet, uh, or in this case, finding a fix to a vulnerability that hadn't been identified yet. And... You know, a lot of people say that, you know, oh, well, you know, this open source software, it, 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 people always say there are many eyes on it and nobody's really looking. And that argument is is false. But this clearly demonstrates that there are eyes on this code, not necessarily by the developers themselves, but by people interested in the um, security domain that these products serve. Yeah, you know, it, it really seems like it's true just being open source doesn't mean you have eyes. It is not sufficient for that kind of review, but it's certainly necessary. Yeah. So the way this particular vulnerability works is that um, if you can send the crafted packets to the server, it will respond with uh, an authentication denial in one condition, and it will disconnect in another. And that tells you whether or not the username that you've used in the authentication requests is a valid user on the server. So that gives you a little bit of information leakage in order to get you another rung up the ladder in order to better target, you know, that server or that organization in order to get a successful hack. That may not seem like much, but OpenSSH is deployed really absolutely everywhere and for just about every sort of secure interaction whether that be automated updates or just logging in to deploy new code happens over ssh so mm. any sort of additional information it also makes me worry about you know there's probably a number of other devices or security equipment out there that are vulnerable to this and will never get patched will never get patched and probably have some weird built-in users already that might not be as secure as you would hope Mm, yeah. So as we said, you know, one of the mitigations that is discussed here is disabling key-based authentication. But some other mitigations that you could put into place is um, using something like a, an application-level firewall that limits the number of SSH connections that come from a particular host over a course of a number of seconds, which only gives you some sort of mitigation because um, you could have a botnet doing this and obviously then you've got thousands of IP addresses working in courts with one another. Um, and the and the other thing you could do is um, fake the um, valid users behind the um, SSH server using a honeypot or something to throw the attacker off with false information. 
Oh, those are great ideas. I wonder, too, you know, it might just be a good time. Some people employ, you know, um, bastion hosts or other sort of network segregation techniques. And if you're in those sorts of positions, you might still just, you know, want to leave all of your things in place and just do some more auditing and make sure, well, if they can list your users, that it doesn't really matter because all your users are set up to enable really strong keys and have only the privileges that they require. Yeah. And I think ultimately... This leak only happens when you're using key-based authentication. And so long as you are looking after your keys in a sane way, this is going to be difficult to exploit. I completely agree. Now, if you're curious about this, there are some proof of concepts and even a whole bunch of in-depth tutorials about how this all works. Go find our show notes, techsnap.system slash 382 for all that information and more Plus, I will say there's also something on setting up OpenSSH to log the events that might expose this attempt. So if you've already got good login infrastructure and alerts around that, maybe just one more check to add this weekend. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was curious about some sort of nefarious OpenSSH vulnerability or just trying to audit what was happening on one of my systems, a tool I frequently turn to is Wireshark. And just this week, we've seen that the Wireshark team has plugged three serious vulnerabilities that could allow an unauthenticated remote attacker to crash the installation. Yeah, so I I was fascinated by this article. This this took me back to my past a little bit, and I, I read these CVEs with interest. And I was very surprised that the initial so cvss is the the common vulnerability scoring system and it's a, a floating point number between um 0 and and 10 obviously 10 being most severe horrible yes the end end of days scenario is a 10 and these were 7.5 which i was a bit surprised about because at the end of the day it just you know crashes the uh the application uh but also in order to crash the application, you have to jump through hoops of fire as an attacker. You have to be able to inject malformed packets onto the network that's being monitored by these Wireshark installs. And then you have to create a packet trace and then convince an operator of one of those Wireshark installations to then replay that packet trace installation and then the application crashes. And within CVSS, there are a number of um, scoring areas. And the last part is the environmental part, which is always down to you as the vulnerability analyst at a particular organization or installation to score those factors based on your exposure. How many installations of this do you have? And the difficulty to exploit this thing where you are and when i actually open and and it's been a long time since i've opened up the cvss scoring sheet (laughs) i I bet (laughs) well i opened that up and started to fill out you know the environmental um mitigations around this like you have to have access to the network and all the other hoops you have to jump through the severity of these vulnerabilities dropped quite significantly uh so maybe this is not one to worry about too much but Go and update your Wireshark's when uh, when your your distro or if you're using Windows or Mac, just go and grab the new versions and get those installed. 
That is great advice. It is it is a funny thing, and I think you just have to always be aware. I don't know too many people who run, run Wireshark as some sort of continuous network appliance. Usually it is, you know, some sort of targeted thing where you're investigating yeah. a particular packet capture. Yeah, I did wonder that. You know, reading this, is is uh, Wireshark being used as some sort of, you know, um, intrusion detection system these days? You know, because I don't use Wireshark that way, and back when I used to do this sort of stuff, that wasn't how I used Wireshark. But is that one of its functions now? And maybe that is significant because if you take down the IDS via these means, then you've got, you know, free range to do all sorts of other things undetected. Yeah, that was something I was considering in this one is, you know, maybe this just makes it, if you're really clever and you're under a sustained targeted attack, perhaps they throw in some of these malformed packets to disrupt you as you're trying to analyze the attack. You're right, it is pretty specific, though. And I think the other thing to keep in mind, even with Wireshark in any sort of utility, when you're parsing untrusted input, well, you're just in danger, and you need to you know, run those programs in an environment where if the worst happens and there's some fatal flaw, some sort of execution bug or stack overflow, you're protected. And this, this you know, echoes back to our first story today where we talked about not just opening email attachments directly, but maybe using a cloud provider and uploading the document there and then opening it through that cloud provider's tools. It really all comes back to, you know, just be aware of what you do. It's not always easy, especially when, you know, we all we all have busy lives. You're trying to you're trying to run around. And especially if you're like, oh no, something's not working. I'm opening Wireshark. I'm trying to actually figure out what this production problem is. Mm. But just something to keep in the back of your mind. Now, normally on TechSnap, it'd be time for just a little bit of feedback. But I thought since we have our dear special guest, Mr. Wimpress, joining today, it'd be more appropriate if we sat down for some story time. Our story today comes out of the incredible difficulties with running an ISP and some of the strange end user problems you're bound to run into. Wow. This looks like above my pay grade. I see all of this low-level TCP stuff. So, so come on, Wes, for the listeners in the UK, it's Jack and Ori. Tell us a story. Can do. So this is a journey about troubleshooting some TCP resets that have been impacting customers for a local ISP. The story goes to something a little like this. Almost immediately after we turned up our two new Arista border routers in late July, we started receiving a trickle of complaints from customers regarding their inability to access certain websites, mostly business-to-business things, nothing big. You know, it's not that they couldn't get into Facebook. It was still perplexing. All the packet captures, so the standard TCP, SYN, SYNAC pair, but then a TCP reset from the website after the client had sent a TLS hello. Now, of course... This wasn't just an isolated case. The reports continued to come in. We slowly built a Google Doc to keep track of all of these things. And, well, it became clear that most of the sites were actually hosted by just a few different providers. A couple of them were from Encapsula and then some from Securi and Fastly. Now, this stands out because some of these providers provide DOS protection. And that that is a clue right there. Maybe there's something going on. You know, when you're trying to troubleshoot issues like this, any sort of thread that you can pull, you pull and you follow. 
So, of course, we tried to work with them, providing websites, source destination IPs, trace routes, packet captures, anything that we had to find out why their hosts were issuing our customers a reset and just what was going on. Unfortunately, little progress was made. We moved some of the affected customers to different IP addresses, didn't resolve the issue. We asked our customer to work with the website, not a lot of luck there either. And of course, all throughout this time, our customers are getting frustrated. This is where things get a little more interesting. Now, over the weeks that this whole problem has been happening, a few of those customers purchased or borrowed different routers. And some of those didn't see problems anymore. And more than a few of them also discovered that the websites worked fine from their house or their mobile phone, but not through the internet connection that we were providing. This is not a good scenario right now. You're now clearly identified as the root of all evil and problems. (laughs) Right, this poor provider is sitting in the middle trying to provide a good service to their customers and they're all harping on them saying like, look, it works on my house. Look, it works on my phone. Why can't I access this website that I need to do my job? The story continues. Earlier this week, we received four or five more websites from yet another affected customer. We noticed that most of those were hosted with Fastly. Now, Fastly is a big CDN provider. They've got all kinds of services you can use with them, and really, they'll just try to make you fast, right? And some behind-the-scenes stuff. Canonical makes good use of Fastly for our infrastructure. Oh, good to know. Now, by this time, we'd been able to replicate the issue in our lab. And just stepping back here, oh, man, that's great. Anytime you can actually replicate a problem you're trying to debug, you actually are finally maybe on the path to success. Without that, it's just a quagmire of unknowns. And you feel like a, you know, you're not in the lab being able to do experiments. You're doing observation at the will and whim of the universe. Now, by this time, we're feeling pretty desperate. Our customers are upset. We have no idea what's going on. And as, a, as an attempt to make any headway whatsoever, we reached out to the Fastly Knock. In less than 12 hours, they provided some actually really helpful feedback, pointing out that a single trace route to a Fastly site was hitting two of their pops. And because they don't sync state between pops, well, that second pop would just naturally issue a TCP reset saying like, hey, no, we don't have an established session. What what are you doing here? It became clear in some subsequent email exchanges that the Fastly knock, to them, it seemed like we had been spraying flows, which is to say packets related to a single client session were leaving our network via different paths. Now, this is a problem that I've had in the past where I've misconfigured equipment before where you're using multiple media to get your uh, traffic out of your facility to elsewhere. And if you don't configure it properly, you end up sending packets out of both points of egress and they are clearly not going to get assembled correctly when they get to their appropriate destination. And big problems ensue. So that must be it, right? This is a common problem. That's definitely the problem. Yeah, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. That is a common problem. And it's easy to forget how many little state machines are in play when you're just sending some normal requests over the network. And if they suddenly seem to be coming from somewhere else, well, there's a lot of middleware boxes out there that are just not going to be too happy about that. So I've nailed it. That must have been it, right? Well, mm, uh, well, yes and no. You're, you're, you're close. You're, you're, we're on the right path. 
So we had to do some more investigation, of course. Each of the border routers had two BGP sessions over two different circuits to provide her from POP A and, and two sessions over to POP B for a total of four BGP sessions per border router. And, and again, there's several border routers in play. That's With two of them, that's eight BGP sessions altogether. As an experiment, starting with the core router, we configured it so that its ECMP hashing was consistent and that fastly bound traffic always went to border router 1 or always went to border router 2. Then we looked at some of the hashing schemes in use on our border routers and noticed something a bit special. By default, Arista includes the following things in their hash. The source IP address. Okay, hey, yep, that makes sense. The protocol. Yeah, naturally. The destination IP address. You're going to need that. And the time to live. I rescind my earlier diagnosis. Yeah, isn't that interesting? That's not something you always see included in these hash sets. The, the TTL is important here, and you would think that maybe it shouldn't matter at all. And that was kind of what I thought when I was first reading through this report. But no, it has some serious consequences. Now, because, of course, like the source and the destination IPs and the protocol, none of that's going to change for one particular session. They started looking more at the TTL and, well, popped open their favorite tool, which is, of course, Wireshark. Hopefully properly patched. Oh, I hope so. Good, good point, sir. Turns out, well, the TTL value was 128 for one of the packets and 127 on the next. A quick and easy fix here was just to adjust the Arista's load balancing profile just to not care at all about TTL. And then, boom, immediately, any trace threads going in the background changed. All the sites became consistent. There was no more spraying of packets. And the troublesome sites were loading. Yeah. Wow. TTLs and timeouts. This story is really interesting. So within the the link in the show notes, there are, uh, as a detailed, this story that Wes has told is expressed in a, a lot more detail. And it has a few links to some other instructional material about how to uh, configure flow labeling and all sorts of things at your um, points of egress. But this reminds me that everyone says, oh, if it's a network problem, it's a DNS problem. And usually DNS problems are TTL problems. And I can remember years and years ago when I worked at Sun, we had a case that came past us, which has now been documented on the internet. And it's simply called the case of the 500 mile email, which is an organization who weren't able to send emails further than 500 miles from their office, which obviously, as you listen to this, sounds ridiculous. Absolutely absurd. <laughs> but that was also due to a timeout misconfiguration. And we'll have a link in the show notes to how it was even possible to only send an email 500 miles. Techsnap.system slash 382. And, you know, we just love stories here at Techsnap. So if you have any of your own, head on over to techsnap.systems slash contact. Although I was slightly disappointed to learn that the Techsnap podcast is not actually about tech snaps the thing that i do on a day-to-day -day basis i did find something from the netflix skunk works that could be a fabulous snap and it's a utility called diffy 
uh, and it's a triage tool used uh, using cloud-centric security instance to help collect digital forensics for incident response teams. And this is an amazing little utility that that's really geared towards uh, instances running on AWS and uh, to correlate and aggregate data across your deployments in order to find a bad actor or perhaps a compromised node in your cluster. Yeah, it's a fascinating tool. It seems to be mostly Python based. So it's just a virtual env, a git clone and a pip installed away. And it really comes out of Netflix's heritage of embracing the cloud. These days, anything that's not on their FreeBSD CDN, well, it lives in AWS. And AWS promotes an image-based workflow, right? You configure something, you bake an AMI or a Docker image or a, a, a container image of some sort, it gets scheduled and run on servers. So most of your servers are basically the same. And that means when you're actually trying to find a breach, something must be different. Whether or not that's, you know, extra keys that are there, changes to config files on disks, or any other number of things. Hey, there's an unusual port configured. There's a process running that isn't in the configuration management. Exactly. And that's where Diffy comes in. Certainly a tool I would leverage, if I, especially if you have a large fleet of similar software, similar VMs, and you want a, somewhere to direct all of your security resources, look to Diffy. Yeah, so it first hit GitHub in March this year. Looking at the initial commit, looks like something that had been in development for some time before Netflix took the decision to share this with the rest of the world. And only 127 commits old, this looks like an impressive tool everyone who is operating uh, incident response team should have in their tool belt. And unfortunately, well... That leaves us with just about no time left for today's TechSnap episode, but there's a few more things before you go. Of perennial interest to the TechSnap program is, of course, cryptography. So I'd like to leave you with at least two links for homework. I know I'll be reading them. The first is an intensive guide to cryptography. This is a fabulous resource. So the last time I studied crypto in any... Uh, detail was about 14, 15 years ago as part of my CISSP qualifications. And I look at the uh, number of documents here and the detail that they go into, and there's some familiar ground. But also I realize there are some things that have changed. In particular, there are a couple of um, pieces here about quantum computing and cryptography, which when the last time I, I studied this in, in any detail, was all theoretical and is very much um, uh, a practical consideration these days. This is definitely my kind of resource. It's beautifully typeset. It's got all of the complicated mathematics, anything you could want. It's going to be used as an upcoming Harvard CS course. So you know it's got good credentials. Go check it out, provide feedback, and learn something. But of course, that sort of rigorous courseware, it, it's just not for everyone. So... We've got yet one more link this week. Yeah, it's not for everyone, but I would say if you do study documentation as complete as this, 
you will learn about things such as the birthday paradox, which is great for barbecues and family gatherings where you can impress your friends and family with mathematical tricks that they don't understand. So go and read about the birthday paradox. But if you want something a little bit more lively, there is a manga guide to cryptography. Maybe you just are bored staring at sheets and sheets of equations. I just can't see LaTeX one more time, Wes. What are you doing to me? Hopefully, comic form is a little more digestible. It's almost, you know, like a platonic dialogue where you've got a little back and forth. You've got characters interacting. And at the end of the day, you've got fascinating mathematics, computer science, and real-world applications. With that, well, you've got no excuse but to study. I know that's what I'll be doing because that wraps up the TechSnap program. But don't worry, there's so much more. TechSnap.system slash 382 for all the links for all the deep dives we've done today. Or TechSnap.system slash subscribe if you just want to find all the other episodes and make sure you're always current. If you want more of me, well, I'm at Wes Payne. What about you, Martin? Uh, well, I'm at M underscore Wimpress on Twitter. You will also find me with my friends over at the Ubuntu podcast. So that's ubuntupodcast.org. And uh, professionally, you can find me at snapcraft.io or ubuntu.com. And don't forget to check us both out over at Linux Unplugged, linuxunplugged.com. You can also find the whole network at jupiterbroadcasting.com or at Jupiter Signal. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. 